If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up to the book of Deuteronomy to chapter 17. We're going to read verses 2 through 5 before I begin to comment. So Deuteronomy chapter 17 verses 2 to 5 read, If there is found among you, within any of your gates which the Lord your God gives you, a man or a woman who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, who has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the hosts of heaven which I have not commanded, and it is told you when you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is indeed true and certain, that such an abomination has been committed in Israel. You shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has committed that wicked thing and shall stone to death that man or woman with stones. So the first thing we've got to know is you don't walk around carrying rocks in your pockets. When it says in verse 4, you shall inquire diligently, and if it's indeed true and certain means what? They have had a trial. The witnesses have come, they have testified, they have proven to the satisfaction of the court that the allegations are true. Then the sentence is death. But what is it that they have done? It says, gone and worshipped other gods, verse 3. Served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the host of heaven. So all of the pagan idols on earth are centered around worship of the sun, the moon, and the stars. That's the way it's always been. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. What does God say about taking this sun, moon, and stars worship and bringing it into the worship of the true and living God? Does he say it's okay to just do it a little don't do it. Deuteronomy 4.19 And take heed. You're not there yet. So let me take heed till you get there. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 19 And take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them which the Lord your God has given to all the people, son of the whole heaven, as a heritage. So here in Deuteronomy 4, Moses is warning the people. People have a tendency to want to worship the sun, moon, and stars. Why? They're bright. They're bright? Is that the only reason? Oh, the sunlight helps the crops to grow. The moon is responsible for tides and also for planting seasons. So it's all around the sun and moon bring us the food from the earth. Is it the sun and moon that bring us the food from the earth? Or is it the Lord our God who brings it? So the sun, moon, and stars were what? Were they creators? No, they were created. So we worship the creator, not the creation. Let's go also to 2 Kings. We'll see how the people handle this commandment. 2 Kings chapter 23. 
verse 11. Do you remember Josiah? Not personally, but what's written of him? Okay. I see I was going to go today. In verse 11, it was Josiah who said, oh, really? There, there's a God and there's a scroll and there's a, the law and we ought to do these things. Verse 11, it says, then he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to what? To the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech. The officer was in the court and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. So they had erected idols of horse-drawn chariots dedicated to the sun. Why? What did the pagans say? That the sun is being carried in a chariot by a God who draws the sun across the sky. This is the way of saying this is the God we worship, because where did they put it? Right at the temple. Was this like Solomon's temple? Yes, this is like Solomon's temple. That's before they carved the creches in the wall and all that stuff? It's about the same time. You know, they start small and, well, God didn't destroy us all, so let's do a little more and a little more and a little more until the hand of God came down and squished them all. Kind of sound like what's happening today? That's coming, so get ready for it. But first, Ezekiel chapter 8. Josiah's day is before the captivities begin. Ezekiel's day is not. When we come to Ezekiel, God is pouring out judgment. Ezekiel chapter 8. We mentioned crushes being cut into the walls of the temple itself. Look at Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. This is at the time that they're cutting creches and putting up idols in the walls of the temple itself. And in verses 15 and 16, it says, Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? What? Verse 14, they're weeping for Tammuz. Who is Tammuz? Another name for Tammuz is Baal, the sun god. So verse 15 said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again, you'll see greater abominations than these. So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. Who gets to go in the inner court? Just everybody? No, just the elite, right? And there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord, their faces toward the east, and they were worshiping the sun toward the east. In God's house. How is God described in Exodus chapter 20? He is a jealous God. Go to Jeremiah 8. Jeremiah 8 takes place as the Babylonian captivity is underway. And people are saying, why, why, what did we do? Jeremiah 8, verses 1 to 3. 
Jeremiah 8, verses 1 to 3. At that time, says the Lord, they shall bring out the bones of the kings of Judah, and the bones of his princes, and the bones of the priests, and the bones of the prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem out of their graves. They shall spread them before the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven, which they have loved and which they have served and after which they have walked, which they have sought and which they have worshipped. They shall not be gathered nor buried. They shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. Then death shall be chosen rather than life by all the residue of those who remain of this evil family who remain in all the places where I have driven them, says the Lord of hosts. So all the pagan worship in the Bible is directed to the sun, the moon, and the stars. And it began where? In the town of? Babel. Babel is the Hebrew word for Babylon. Why did they build the Tower of Babylon? The Tower of Babel? To reach up to the sun, moon, and stars. To reach the pagan gods. So the gods could come down and they could ascend up to them. Go ahead. Is this a Mexican day of the dead? Kind of like what they're talking about in the scripture you just read about bringing out all the bones. Do they do that in the Mexican day of the dead? I thought they just dressed up in costumes like the dead. I've never been there. I've never observed it. I don't know, but they, typically they don't even bury the dead. If they can't afford it, they just throw them in a the valley and the bones are in the valley. Okay. And if you don't pay your rent, the caskets are brought up and empty. Yeah, okay. Tradition. They bring them food as an they set up altars. It's like a weird yeah. kind of thing. So it may be like this. But this is talking about disgraceful. Yeah. Death, disgraceful. In the Bible, to not be buried is a disgrace. So they're bringing all the bones out of the graves and just throwing them on the ground to say if they want to see the sun, moon, and stars that badly, let them look at them. It's bad. Now, an article. It's from... Um, a website called Ancient Sun Worship slash the Review of Religions. But the section I printed out to read is the section about Christianity and the sun. It says Christianity emerged out of Judaism, and therefore all of the early Christians, open parent Jews who had accepted Jesus as their Messiah, close parent, were monotheistic. However, they lived in a context of other civilizations, such as the Romans, Greeks, Egyptians, and Persians, all of whom had strong cultures of their own. As Christians tried to politically distance themselves from the Jews, they also tried to gain acceptance in Europe. Their theology sometimes became merged with local culture to the detriment of Christianity. We're talking about syncretism, bringing in pagan practices, says a key example of this was the interaction of Christianity in the Roman Empire with traditional Roman beliefs. The Romans had been persecuting Christians and despised the Jews whom they had defeated in Jerusalem around 70 Common Era. They wanted all races in their empire to pay tribute to the emperor and the Roman gods and goddesses. Over three centuries, gradually, Christians began to associate Jesus with the Roman god Sol Invictus. By depicting Jesus as having a solar halo around his head, just like Sol Invictus, 
and by adopting the holy day of their god, December 25th, as the key date for Christianity, erroneously celebrated as the birthday of Jesus. In the early 17th century, Christianity had to debate the place of the sun in the universe with scientists such as Galileo. The orthodox view of the church at that time was that man was central and therefore the earth must be at the center of the universe and the universe must revolve around the earth. Galileo was condemned for his scientific beliefs that were seen to be at odds with orthodox religious beliefs. Modern science has proven the scientific view to be correct. The long-term long impact of Christian use of a solar calendar is that its festivals are associated more with the seasons than, the, than they occur, when they occur, than the events they signify. Also, the legacy of the association of Sol Invictus is that the birthday of Jesus is celebrated on December 25th, which used to be the winter solstice 2,000 years ago. It's important to note that Jesus himself would not have recognized some of the innovations that later became part of Christianity as he was a practicing Jew. So I thought it was a pretty good article. So the church over the first four centuries, especially in the fourth century, incorporated sun god worship into Christianity to make a hybrid syncretism. Kind of like lukewarm. And what does God say about lukewarm? He'll vomit him out of his mouth. So let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. By the way, yes, ma'am. So would you say that Christianity as a whole is uh, the term to say that you're a Christian or uh, believe in Christianity, that would be encompassing of a pagan? Uh, would you tell that to a Jew? That is why many Jews over the centuries have refused to even consider Messiah or Christianity is because they look at it as a pagan religion. As I've heard many of them say, you're talking about a Greek god for the Greek people. Well, enough of that. On to verse 6. We mentioned that the discussion in verses 2 to 5 is not people walking around with stones in their pocket. Rather, in verse 4, it's talking about taking them to court, presenting witnesses, proving the charges. So verse 6 is not a different topic. It's on the same topic. It says, whoever is deserving of death, shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. That sets up a principle that we find throughout the scripture, is there must be two or more witnesses that agree to the offense that was committed before someone can be found guilty. So what if somebody's hauled before the Sanhedrin and there's one witness who will testify to an offense? then he goes free, not guilty. Yes, they punish the witness who is a false witness. So it's not good to be a false witness. 
Do you realize that in the courts that are done under biblical terms, the person also goes free if the guilt is 100% guilty? They figure if it's a 100% guilty vote, it wasn't a fair vote. Because trying to persuade more than 70 people of the truth of something is very hard to do. At the trial of Messiah, did all of the Sanhedrin vote guilty? No, no name me two. Who said not guilty? Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. It was not unanimous. Okay, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. And you may say, but what if we get there today? To which I go, yeah, I don't think so. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And then verse 16 goes on, yeah, now what about false witnesses? If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. Was that a discouragement for being a false witness? Yeah, yeah that's a big discouragement. Matthew chapter 18. Does that principle continue into the New Testament? The answer is, of course it does. Matthew chapter 18. When Messiah said in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live bread alone, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, he let us know that every word is important. Oh, looks like all these were just... People answering each other. Okay, we're good. Matthew chapter 18, verse 16. Talking about if a brother within a congregation sins against you, what do you do? Verse 16 says, but if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. So does the principle continue into the New Testament? Of course it does. Every word Messiah spoke is important. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Second Corinthians chapter 13. Right before Galatians. Verse 1, Paul says, this, is the, this will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Counting himself three times. That's yeah. Good. I was going to say, he's maybe twisting this just a little bit. I don't think he was schizophrenic. Okay. 1 Timothy chapter 5. My point is that the principle still applies. 
First Timothy chapter five, verse nineteen. So when the Lord repeats things three times, it's like Paul just said, it's like three witnesses. Three times I've told you this. Yeah. If he says something three times, he's pounding the table. How many times did he say repent in the New Testament? Was it 58? If once is important, twice is really important, what's 58 times? It's fair warning. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except... From two or three witnesses. So even in the courts, in the congregations, in the synagogues, still need two or more witnesses. Book of Hebrews, chapter 10. If you have more than three, is that an issue at all? Nope. Means at least two or three. If you have a hundred saying the same thing, the point that person is in real trouble. Yeah. <laughs> Hebrew chapter 10, verse 28. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. What witnesses do we have that Yeshua is the Messiah, the only begotten Son of God? We have his own witness. We have the law. We have the prophets. We have the New Testament. We have God from heaven at the baptism saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew chapter 17, the voice of God again. And the Spirit in our hearts. And all the witnesses who saw the resurrection and those who are resurrected with Messiah. So are there plenty of witnesses to prove the point? So if we then reject Messiah and say, Nah, he's a false prophet, he's a fraud. Do we have witnesses who will stand against us? Yes. If, what if we just had the law and the prophets? That's two. What if we just had the voice of God from heaven and the Holy Spirit within us? That's two. Yeah. So what's our excuse? None. Go back to Deuteronomy 17. As rupt of verse 7. Here's another reason that people would be very hesitant to be false witnesses. Verse 7 says, The hands of the witnesses, those who testified to the crime, to the sin that led to the death sentence, shall be the first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hands of all the people. So you shall put away the evil from among you. So what if those two or more witnesses were lying? Then they just committed murder. They just killed an innocent man. What does the scripture say about no murderers have eternal life? No murderers have eternal life. 
Ooh, so you got to be careful. Exodus chapter 20. This is another concept that we find in many places. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. You shall not what? Bear false witness against your neighbor. People say, well, this means gossip and backbiting. It could include that, but the primary emphasis is don't be a false witness against your neighbor. Go to Exodus 23, verse 1. You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. In verse 2 is much like it. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil. How many out here are parents? Your kids ever say, well, everybody else is doing it. How many of you thought that was a good excuse? Well, then, okay, if, if everybody is doing it, no. You didn't, did you? And neither does God. Mama's response to me with that was, if everybody else jumped off the cliff, would you jump? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> no. Deuteronomy chapter 5. She didn't say it depends on how high the cliff is. <laughs> okay. Deuteronomy 5, verse 20. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 20. This is when God gives the Ten Commandments on the second set of stones. The question is, has it changed? The answer is, of course not. It says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In Deuteronomy 19, starting in verse 15. Through verse 21. Just put it in your notes. We read it just a few minutes ago. It begins with two or more witnesses and then explains what you do if it's a false witness and how the false witness bears the punishment that he hoped to meet out to the accused. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning in verse 8. If a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge, what does that mean? Yeah, I'm not sure who's innocent or who's guilty or, or, or what to do in this case. It says, between degrees of guilt for bloodshed, was it murder? Was it manslaughter? Was it an accident? What was it? Between one judgment or another, do we stone? Do we burn? Do we hang? What do we do? Or between one punishment or another, matters of controversy within your gates, then you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses. So what do you do? You go up to the temple. You go up to Jerusalem. Who's the ultimate appellate authority? God is. That's right. 
Verse 9, you shall come to the priests, the Levites, and to the judge there in those days, and inquire of them. They shall pronounce upon you the sentence of judgment. It's talking about the Sanhedrin there. The Sanhedrin is supposed to be taking their guidance from the Lord. So in this nation, we have trial courts, then we have appellate courts, then we have a second level of appellate court. And that's what they're talking about here, is going up to an appellate court. Verse 10, you shall do according to the sentence which they pronounce upon you in that place which the Lord chooses. Because again, it's assumed that God gave them the right answer. You shall be careful to do according to all that they order you. What does that mean? Follow it exactly. Follow it exactly. Do it the way God says to do it. Verse 11, according to the sentence of the law in which they instruct you. What do you suppose that word there is for law? The Torah. So what are the judges supposed to be using as their law books, their guide? The Torah, the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. So according to the sentence of the Torah in which they instruct you, according to the judgment which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left from the sentence which they pronounce upon you. Hmm. Have you heard that phrase recently? Don't turn to the right hand or to the left. About a week ago, didn't we? Yeah. We looked all about that. So verse 12 is, what about the man who hears the judgment of the court and says, I'm not going to do it? Are there people who would take that kind of attitude? Oh, yeah. So verse 12, now the man who acts presumptuously, meaning I don't care what the court said, I'm going to do what I want anyway. And will not he, the priest, who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall put away the evil from Israel. You don't want to accept the decision of the court? Then die. And all the people shall hear in fear and no longer act presumptuously. There are a lot of protests today that say the death sentence is not a deterrent. What does God say? Oh, yes, it is. And it removes the evil source. One of the evil sort of almost like the leaven. Yeah, it stops the leaven from spreading, doesn't it? Yeah, if they would do it the way the Bible said, society might not be in the state it's in. Because, I mean, how long do people sit on death row? 20, 30 years? Depending on the person. Yeah. How many times do you read, somebody committed a murder? Well, this is his fifth murder in the last 10 years. Because he keeps being paroled. For good behavior. Yeah, for good behavior. Okay, ignoring that. Verse 14 said, When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, 
This is astounding. Does Israel do that? Yes. yes. More than 400 years later. How did God know? He's God. What does Isaiah tell us? How do you know he's God? Because only he can tell us the end from the beginning. Let's look at it. 1 Samuel chapter 8. First Samuel chapter 8. Verses 1 to 21. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, which means what? The Lord is God. The name of his second was Abijah, which means what? My father is the Lord. And they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes in perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you're old. Like he didn't know that. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. Why? To get guidance. He wants to know what to do. Lord, what should I do? The Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. Oh, aren't the kings going to be good, godly people? They're going to lead the people in justice and honor? No. no. Verse 10, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. Will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. He will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. And the Lord will not hear you 
in that day. So he says, you're going to cry out to the Lord because of all the, the terrible things the king is going to do to you and God's not going to hear it because it's what you want, it's what you ask for. You made your bed. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but we will have a king over us that we may also be like all the nations. Isn't that what God told them to be, just like all the nations? No. Supposed to be a set-apart people. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city. So back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. God told them more than 400 years before, you're going to demand a king, I'm going to give it to you, and you're not going to like it. So verse 15, you shall surely set a king over you, whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set his king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Somebody's talking about Herod the Great. He was an Idumean. What's that? It's a descendant of Esau. Can a descendant of Esau be a lawful king over Israel? No. So why did Israel choose Herod the Great? They didn't. That's right. Rome put him as king over Israel because he knew the descendants of Esau hated the children of Israel. I'm sure the feeling was likewise. I'm sure the feeling was likewise too. Herod, his father was a forced convert to Judaism. And Herod didn't think much of the Jewish people or their religion. But there was one thing he did. According to Caesar in Rome, it's better to be a pig in the house of Herod than one of his own sons because at least he wouldn't eat the pig. Herod murdered most of his children because he was afraid they might try and take his throne one day. Back in those days, there were forced converts to Judaism, and because of Herod the Great, they stopped that practice. So if Israel conquered an area, they forced them to convert to Judaism so they would quit worshiping the pagan gods and bring the pagan worship into Israel. But he did marry... He married Mary Omni. Mariamne, the last princess of the Hasmoneans, because he said, if I marry into the Hasmonean dynasty, the people will love me. By then, were they Good thought. hating the Hasmonean dynasty because they were Greek or following the Greeks? No, the Hasmoneans were the descendants of the Maccabees right. who defeated the Greeks. Yes, but didn't they, over time, change to be people who supported uh, assimilation? I may be totally wrong. I'm sorry. Answer is, not that I know of, but I, I could be wrong. Okay. So he married Mary Omni, thinking that that would carry favor with the people, and it didn't. Then he expanded the Temple Mount. What's that? Wasn't Jordan 
Hashem call themselves a Hasmonean kingdom? No, Hashemite. Hashemite, okay. Hashemite. The Jordanian ruling family are the Hashemites. They're direct descendants of Mohammed. So they claim to be Hashem's favorites. So he expanded the temple complex and, and, and rebuilt the temple into something much bigger and more beautiful than it had been before after the Babylonian captivity, thinking that's going to cause the people to love me. Did it? It did not. So at the time he was approaching his death, he told them to take a bunch of the sages of Israel and put them in some kind of building, it might have been a synagogue, and burn it to the ground. So that as the people mourned over their deaths, he could pretend they were mourning over his. But then I heard that at the last minute he changed his mind and said, no, don't do that. i got to stand before God one day. So that was Herod the Great. So was God right that they wouldn't like a foreign ruler? Yeah, yeah, he was right. Now let's read verses 16 and 17, which say, But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. What did horses represent in those days? Military might. In other words, who were they supposed to rely upon for defense? God. If they're multiplying horses and chariots, it means they're looking at their own military might and power. It says, For the Lord has said to you, shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself. Whoa. Lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Uh-oh. So three things God says. Don't multiply horses. Don't go to Egypt to get horses. And don't multiply wives. Let's see how we did on that score. Go to 1 Kings chapter 10. 1 Kings chapter 10. Do you get the idea that if we listen to God, we do better? First yeah. Kings chapter 10, verse 26. First Kings chapter 10, verse 26. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. What was one of Solomon's main chariot cities? Har-Megiddo, from which we get the word Armageddon. Yep. Okay, so he multiplied horses. How about the commandment not to go to Egypt to multiply horses? Let's look at verse 28, same chapter, 1 Kings 10, verse 28. Also Solomon had horses imported from Egypt and Keva. The king's merchants bought them in Keva at the current price. Now a chariot that was imported from Egypt cost 600 shekels of silver and a horse 150. And thus through their agents they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. So they made a profit on them. Yeah, they made a profit. No motor. 
So did Solomon obey the commandment against multiplying horses? No. no. Did he obey the commandment not to go to Egypt to multiply horses? No. no. How about the silver? Look at verse 27, 1 Kings 10, 27. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. At least he didn't have multiple wives. Oh, wait, wait, wait. 1 Kings 11. Let's start in verse 1. At least God put all the violations right together so he didn't have to search for them. But King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh. Women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. From the nations of whom the Lord has said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Boy, isn't that a common refrain today? All we need to do is love and everything else is forget God's commandments, just love. What do you know about Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites? Baal Peor mentioned specifically. All these are pagan peoples with sexually immoral ways. Verse 3, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. What did God say in Deuteronomy 17? Don't do it because they will turn away your heart. Read verse 3 again. And his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth. That's another name for Ishtar, Easter. The goddess of the Sidonians and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Milcom is who? Moloch. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab. What's a high place? Pagan altar. On the hill that is east of Jerusalem. And for Moloch, the abomination of the people of Ammon. He did likewise for whom? All his foreign wives. So he built pagan altars to each and every one of the pagan gods of the surrounding nations. Says who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And it commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this and have not kept my covenant, my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David. And for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. 
So why did Israel divide into the northern kingdom of Israel with ten tribes in the southern kingdom of Judah? Because Solomon led the people into idolatry. Didn't that mean that God changed his mind? Nope. Because God said the penalty for idolatry is death, but he didn't give it to Solomon. Oh, Solomon didn't die? He did not receive death at God's hand or from the people saying he's gone after other gods. Remember, the death penalty has to be handed down by a court on two or three witnesses. Who brought him to court? Nobody. Who testified? Nobody. The prophet did not bring him to court? Nope. Should have, shouldn't he? That means a whole bunch of people should have died for failing to follow God's law. And what happened? The people were taken out of Israel into captivity and multitudes died. What do you think happened to America? Let's keep reading. Back to Deuteronomy 17. America is in for God's judgment very, very soon. You just watch. It's coming. It's coming. Verse 18. In order for the king to rule in righteousness and justice, Verse 18 requires, it says, Also it shall be, when he sits on the copy of his, on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law, this Torah in a book, from the one before the priests and the Levites. Now, there's a dispute between our English Bibles and the Hebrew published Bibles. The Hebrew published Bibles say he's to make two copies. Our English reads a copy. The word in Hebrew can be translated make a copy of or make two of. And that's why there's a distinction. The Christian Bibles say make a copy. The Jewish published Bibles make two copies that he would put one in his treasury. The treasury is where you put the things that are most valuable to you. And if the other, he must have on his person at all times. Which God meant, we'll just have to ask him when we get there. Um, the, I've listened to a Jewish commentator who says that the, you know, whoever, Rambam, whoever it is, says that this, this verse particular is referring to the book of Deuteronomy. It is. And so he's saying he'll make a copy of not the whole Torah, but of Deuteronomy, which contains the Torah. Right. Uh, so that was what they were talking about, was the copy of That's correct, the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 31, when they read the book to the people at the Feast of Tabernacles, it's the book of Deuteronomy. It's not Genesis through Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy contains all of the commandments, statutes, and judgments that apply to us all. So they didn't get up there and read about the dimensions of building the tabernacle. Because how many of us are commanded to go build a tabernacle? None. So that's not a universal commandment for us all. So anything that we need to do as a group or as an individual, not being priests and Levites in the days of the temple, are in Deuteronomy. So you're exactly right. It's the book of Deuteronomy. And notice he can't say, you scribe, do it for me. Again, with the Joshua 1 8, the book of, this book of the law shall not start. He's still talking about Deuteronomy. 
Yeah, probably. We're about to go to Joshua in a minute. I never really, I mean, I always thought he was talking about the whole Torah, which was confusing. Yeah. Generally, it's referring to, when they say this book of the law, that's Deuteronomy. So, it says in verse 18, Also it shall be, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priest and Levites. The word copy is the word Mishnah. Where have you heard Mishnah before? That's part of the Talmud. The Mishnah is, is, they say Mishnah Torah means a second law, referring to the oral Torah. This is not talking about oral Torah. In my view, there is no oral Torah. There's just God's Torah. Let's go to Joshua chapter 8. Joshua chapter 8. To me, Messiah put to rest the idea of the second oral Torah in the book of Matthew chapter 15 and Mark chapter 7. The oral Torah are the rulings of the sages that they say take precedence over the written word of God. Just like the Catholic Church says their doctrines and teachings take precedence over the Bible. Same thing. Joshua chapter 8 verse 32. Joshua builds an altar to the Lord at Mount Ebal. Verse 32, it says, And there in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Again, this is going to be the book of Deuteronomy. Why did he write it on stone? How about a piece of paper? That stone is permanent. Because what was he saying about the word of God? It's not going to change. It's in Israel. Wayne? Yes, sir? Um, the, uh, the thing about the sages and the... Um, they tend to read that rather than, than the Torah itself, which seems very odd to us. But I saw that where they were coming from appears to be that they said, if, if you haven't been taught properly, you can read the Torah and you misread it. Therefore, reading the explanation, the interpretation, is in a way even more important because it stops you reading it wrongly. So that's, their, that's the root argument for why right. they say that, which you can sort of half see where they're coming from. But it right. gets distorted in the in the fullness of time. Yep. And that would be an okay to do as long as all the commentaries were correct. Yep. In our American seminaries, the two seminaries I graduated from, I didn't have to have a Bible because you didn't study the Bible, you studied the commentaries, the doctrine. This is what we say the Bible means. This is what you teach your people. Don't worry about what the Bible says. We'll tell you anything that's important. Well, that's a good way to go astray, I think. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 43. Genesis 43. Which uses the same word that's translated in our Deuteronomy as a copy. 
and in the Tanakh as two copies. Genesis 43, verse 12. Of course, this is about Jacob's sons going down into Egypt dealing with Joseph. Verse 12 says, take double money in your hand. That word double is the same word. So does it mean a copy or does it mean two copies? Since I'm not a king, I don't have to worry about whether it's one or two. Did the kings of Israel do it? Generally speaking, not. A couple of them probably did. Remember when Josiah found the copy of the Torah, nobody even knew what it was? So clearly, it was not done as a regular thing like God had commanded it. So uh, the, yes, sir. The scribes had to duplicate the entire um, Old Testament, basically, periodically, sure. because if just sure. from age, they would deteriorate. Right? Yeah. So the scribes made copies of all the books, right? Because over time, everything would... Fade, rot, break, whatever is written on. Nothing lasts forever unless God tells it to. So back to Deuteronomy. Verses 19 and 20 tell us what he's to do with this copy. It says, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. Meaning he's supposed to read from it every day. Why? That he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this Torah and these statutes. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren. That he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left. And that he may prolong his days in his kingdom. He and his children in the midst of Israel. So in the first line of verse 20, it says that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren. Is, not, is the king not supposed to be worshipped? No. no. He's supposed to be one of the people. He's the one who was in charge. That's all. Just like the congregational leader is not above the people in the congregation. There just has to be somebody to lead the discussion. Nothing more. Don't I deserve a jet airplane? No. No, I do not. Chapter 18. The priests, the Levites, all the tribe of Levi shall have no part nor inheritance with Israel. They don't get a tribal land. Why don't they get a tribal land? Their job's to work in the temple and and to teach Torah in all the other tribal lands. If they were their own tribal land, people would have to go to them or something. But instead, they're dispersed throughout all the tribal lands. So that wherever you go, there are priests and Levites that are there and they're supposed to be teaching the Torah. Which means they would have a copy of it, right? 
which means they would have a copy of it. That's right. That's why the scribes are so busy making copies. And how do you know whether the scribes are making true copies or not? Do you know how that was done? They, they pronounced the letter, they counted the letter. Every letter in Hebrew has a value. Olive is one, Beit is two. When they finished copying over a page, they compared every letter to every letter. Then they added up the value of both pages. And they had to come up to the same value. If they're off even by one, that means they got a letter wrong. And then they had to, if it contained the name of God, bury it. That's what they found at Qumran was the Geniza, which is the place where you bury the scrolls that have errors if they contain the name of God. And there was found every book in the Old Testament except for Esther. Esther, because Esther doesn't contain the name of God. You make a mistake in Esther, you throw it away. But if it's got the name of God in it and you make a mistake, then you bury it. You have a funeral. And that's why they found all those scrolls. And none of the scrolls they found at Qumran are complete and perfect, are they? Because as soon as you find you made a mistake on a page, there goes the scroll. You can't rip out that page and start again. Everything you've done on it is gone. Okay, verse 1, the priests, the Levites, and all the tribe of Levites shall have no part nor inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the offerings of the Lord made by fire and his portion. So they eat and feed their families based upon the sacrifices and the offerings of the people. Let's go to Numbers chapter 35. Numbers 35. Numbers 35, verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> Here's what the priests and the Levites got as far as lands and cities. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Command the children of Israel that they give the Levites cities to dwell in, from the inheritance of their possession, you shall also give the Levites common land around the cities. So they're not just dispersed amongst the people in their villages, they have their own cities in the tribal lands of the other tribes. So the city has the houses, but then they have some common land around it, so they can raise a little bit of food. Verse 3, they shall have the cities to dwell in, and their common land shall be for their cattle, for their herds, and for all their animals. They don't have huge amounts of property to graze sheep on, but they have some. Verse 4, the common land of the cities which you will give the Levites shall extend from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits all around. About three miles. Yeah, which is not a lot. But it's a little. It's enough to graze a few cattle, a few sheep. Verse 5, you shall measure outside the city on the east side 2,000 cubits, on the south side 2,000 cubits, on the west side 2,000 cubits, on the north side 2,000 cubits. The city shall be in the middle. This shall belong to them as common land for the cities. 
Now in the Levites, which you will, I'm sorry, now among the cities which you shall give to the Levites, you shall appoint six cities of refuge, to which a manslayer may flee. And to these you shall add 42 cities. So how many cities total? 48. 48. Out of how many tribal lands? 12. 12. So how many in each tribal land? 12. 12. Because jo Joseph gets broken into two. Manasseh and Ephraim. So four in each tribal land. Which is not a huge amount. But if you accidentally kill somebody, you must flee to that city of refuge and have a trial. And if it's found you did not intentionally kill, how long did you have to live in that city of refuge? Till the death of the high priest and you could go free. Verse 7, so all the cities you will give to the Levites shall be 48. See, God can add. These you shall give with their common land, and the cities which you will give shall be from the possession of the children of Israel. From the larger tribe you shall give many, from the smaller you shall give few. Each shall give some of its cities to the Levites in proportion to the inheritance that each receives. Yeah, it's an average of four, but not necessarily exactly four. And that makes sense. You might want more Levites in the more populated. Correct. And who were the biggest two tribes? Ephraim and Manasseh, right. The two sons of Joseph. All right, back to Deuteronomy 18. What kind of payment were these priests and Levites supposed to get for teaching the Torah amongst the people? Just the tithe and offerings. What happens when the priests start demanding money to teach Torah? Then you have the book of Micah. Micah what? Let's go to Micah 3. Micah 3, verse 9, begins with, now hear this. If you ever hear God say, do you now hear this, do you expect it to be something good? No, you expect the woodshed's coming. So we'll start in verse 9. Now hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice. Uh-oh. If the leaders abhor justice, what does that mean? Means they're not giving fair justice and judgment to the people, huh? It says, and pervert all equity, who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity. Her heads judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for pay. And her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. God promised that they had nothing to worry from the surrounding nations so long as they what? Followed the Torah, stayed true to God, to worship him and him alone and keep all his commandments. They had nothing to worry about. Well, he's listing broken commandment after broken commandment, yet they say, hey, no harm can come to us. What does verse 12 say? Hmm. 
Jerusalem's going to be plowed like a field. Were they just being that arrogant? Were they They believed that because they were circumcised, they were saved and they were good. Yes, Edmund. The, the Pirkei Avot um, says that the Torah should not be used to acquire a crown, nor should it be used as a spade to dig with. In other Correct. words, you don't get paid for it and it's your job. Correct. That's exactly right. And that's been my mantra ever since I entered the ministry. You don't use the Torah as a spade to dig. I can never remember the other part, but I can remember that part. Wayne, yes, sir. Going back to Samuel and his sons. Going back to Samuel and his sons. The, the proper response from the people would have been to bring his sons to trial. Right. And Samuel would have hopefully would have agreed with him, I guess, his righteous following God's laws and for whatever reason his sons didn't. Um, but I, I suspect that the you know, that Israel was pretty corrupt even at that time and they just kinda went along with it because they probably had a, some of them had a share, you know, they had a sort of a vested interest in keeping the the uh, the corruption going. Yeah. Kind of like some of the things we're experiencing today. Yeah, exactly. But consider America with all the corrupt judges all the way to the Supreme Court. Who would bring these people before the law? They are the law. Yes, exactly right. When the law is corrupt, there's really no Right. They should have brought the sons to Samuel and said, Samuel, you judge. And why didn't Samuel do that? Why do you think Samuel did? Didn't he know they were corrupt? I'm sure we don't know. Yeah. We don't know why he didn't. The, the yeah. things they were doing, I mean, Samuel, unless he was totally blind, should have known. They just keep saying Samuel's an old man. But, yeah. If the Lord set it up, would he not have influenced Samuel maybe not to prosecute his sons? Because the Lord had set this all up. It had to happen like that. But that doesn't mean God made it happen like this. He didn't make the sons to be corrupt. Okay. No, but you're absolutely right. God could have said, Samuel, get your sons and bring them to the woodshed. But he also could have said, Samuel, my plan is for Israel to have a king, so don't do this to your sons. Yeah, but I don't think it went that way. There's nothing in the scripture that says God wanted them to have a king. What did he say to Samuel is, they've rejected me. The scripture says that David was afraid to correct his own children. Yes, I understand that. It's like, okay, this commentary I've been listening to on Deuteronomy Mm -hmm. by a Jewish Orthodox person. He indicates that over and over God gives a commandment that was never followed. You know, like the, like the woman who's supposed to be, she worshiped foreign gods, she's supposed to be burned, whatever. He said, well, there's no evidence that that ever happened. Right. Because, and then he'll say, well, because people were afraid it might happen, so it never happened. And then God said to, you know, put your child to death if he does this. But because they were afraid that it might happen, the children never did that. I, yeah, that just doesn't cut the mustard. But he yeah. says this repeatedly about scriptures. Uh, I hear you. Yeah. Yep, yeah, that doesn't make it right. 
Okay, let's get back to Deuteronomy 18. We're all the way up to verse 2. Why Samuel didn't reign in his sons, we simply don't know, but we know he didn't. And we know that God was hurt when they demanded a king, but he also knew they were going to because he told us 400 years before they were going to. Yeah. Like I'm not saying God said, you know, like you were the man. I mean, but right. The Jewish sages say we have a commandment from God that we must demand a king. Yeah. But where is that in Scripture? It's not. Okay. Back to verse two. Therefore, they shall have no inheritance among their brethren. The Lord is their inheritance, as He said to them. And this shall be the priest due from the people. Here's what they're entitled to. From those who offer a sacrifice, whether it's a bull or a sheep, they shall give to the priest the shoulder, the cheeks, and the stomach. I'm not sure I would have wanted the cheeks or the stomach, but however. You slice bacon from the cheeks. Okay. Actually, beef bacon isn't so bad. It fries up real well. Verse 4, the first fruits of your grain and your new wine and your oil and the first of the fleece of your sheep you shall give them. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand to minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. Do you see that word Forever. How many times does that word forever come up in the Torah? A bunch. Pretty bunch. A bunch. If I don't talk too long, we're going to take a look at that in a few minutes. Verse 6, So if a Levite comes from any of your gates, from where he dwells among all Israel, and comes with all the desire of his mind to the place which the Lord chooses, then he may serve in the name of the Lord his God, as all his brethren the Levites do who stand there before the Lord. In other words, a priest or a Levite could dedicate themselves to work in the temple 12 months of the year. They only had to serve one week in the spring, one week in the fall, and then at the three pilgrim festivals. But if they wanted to, they could serve at the temple 360 days a year. Until age 50? Until age 50. But even after that, they could assist. They can be teachers and mentors. Yeah. Verse 8. They shall have equal portions to eat besides what comes from the sale of his inheritance. So if he's going to serve at the temple all of his life, then he sells his inheritance in the city in whatever tribe it was. And he gets that. But then he also gets equal portions with the other priests that are on duty. Literally it says, portion for portion shall they eat, except for what was transacted by the forefathers in First Chronicles chapter 24. First time, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. So how does God look at syncretism? Totally wrong. It is totally wrong. 
So why did we do it? Because God said not to, right? Anytime God says don't, what do we want to do? Yes. Yeah. Who's God to tell us what to do? Is this the first time he's told us don't do it? No. In Deuteronomy 12, he tells us twice. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 12. I used to wonder, why does God tell us some of these things so many times? And then I realized, yeah, but we're still not doing them. Deuteronomy 12, 1 to 4. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in all in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods. On thy mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. When there was a righteous king in Judah who tore down all these things, what did his son do when he became king? Build them back up. Build back better. Build back better. And in Deuteronomy 12, 29 to 32, we read the same thing. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you're not ensnared to follow them after they're destroyed from before you, that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. Back to Deuteronomy 18, and we're up to verse 10. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. Or one who practices witchcraft. Or a soothsayer. Or one who interprets almonds. Or a sorcerer. Or one who conjures spells. Or a medium. Or a spiritist. Or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. King Saul lost the right for his son to follow him on the throne when he refused to destroy the Amalekites. But Saul remained king. He continued to live. He continued to rule and reign until he did what? Went to the witch at Endor and conjured up the spirit of Samuel. Samuel. What did God say about that? Absolutely not. And it cost Saul his very life. And his son, Jonathan even. Leviticus 18, verse 21. How many of you have a Ouija board at home? Don't have one next week. What about the horoscopes in the newspaper? Aren't they fun? No. Leviticus 
You shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Moloch, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. 2 Kings 16, let's see how we did. Where's our scorecard? 2 Kings chapter 16. Verse 3. You see it? But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places on the hills and under every green tree. Was Ahaz a good king? Nope. He was not. 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 17. And they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire, practiced witchcraft and soothsaying, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. That's why the northern kingdom went into captivity 722 BCE. And when did they come out? Still not out. Still not out. Exactly. <laughs> Second Kings 21 verse 6. God expected Judah would learn a lesson from the Assyrian captivity of Israel. Hmm. This is about King Manasseh. Became king when he was just 12 years old. In verse 6 it says, Also he made his son pass through the fire, practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image of Asherah. What was that reference? 2 Kings chapter 21. We begin in verse 6. What's an Asherah tree called today? A Christmas tree. So look at Jeremiah chapter 32. Verse 35. Now we're at the time of the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah 32, 35 says, And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Moloch, which I did not command them, nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger, my fury, and in great wrath. Why was God so angry? Because of what they were doing. Ezekiel 16. 
Ezekiel 16, verses 20 and 21. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters, whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter that you have slain my children and offer them up to them by causing them to pass through the fire? You can read a lot of Jewish sages who say, oh, 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 having the children pass through the fire just means there was fire on both sides and they walked through the middle. Is that what this says? They were sacrificed. They were put to death. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 31. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 31. For when you offer your gifts and make your sons pass through the fire, you defile yourselves with all your idols, even to this day. So shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, says the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Verse 32, what you have in your mind shall never be when you say, we will be like the Gentiles, like the families in other countries serving wood and stone. As I live, says the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, with fury poured out, I will rule over you. So he says, when you say, we will be like the Gentiles, God says, don't even think it. What did Paul say in Ephesians 4.17? said, don't walk like the rest of the Gentiles walk, right? Yeah. Ezekiel 23, verse 37. Ezekiel 23, verse 37. For they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. They have committed adultery with their idols, and even sacrificed their sons whom they bore to me, passing them through the fire to devour them. Moreover, they have done this to me. They have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and profaned my Sabbath. For after they had slain their children for their idols, on the same day they came into my sanctuary to profane it. Indeed, thus they've done in the midst of my house. Again, does it sound like the children just walked merrily between two torches? After they had slain their children. Back to Deuteronomy 18. We may have to stay till 3 today. Just, just a warning. Back to Deuteronomy 18. Verse 13. You shall be blameless. What is that word? Tamim. That's the word that in the New Testament is perfect. It means without spot or blemish. So it means if you commit a sin, repent of it, turn from it, let Messiah's blood wash it clean. 
you shall be blameless before the Lord your God, which means stop sinning. Verse 14 says four. What does four mean? Because these nations which you will dispossess listen to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. Well, if we're not supposed to go to soothsayers and diviners, how are we supposed to learn prophecy? It's written right here in the Bible. Verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. According to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. So this prophet like me, who is then, I wonder? Yeshua, let's go to John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, the people begin to wonder, I wonder if that's Yeshua he's talking about. John chapter 7. John chapter 7, starting in verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, that's Hoshana Rabbah, the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Yeshua stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Yeshua was not yet glorified. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. What did they mean? The prophet spoken of by Moses back in Deuteronomy 18. Now go to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. Did they know that the prophet and the Messiah were one and the same? At that point, no. They're still trying to put the pieces together. Because if you kept reading, the other side of the argument said, no, this is the Messiah. Right. As if they were two different things, yeah. So they're still working now. Matthew 17, 5. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. That hear him comes from Deuteronomy chapter 18. That the prophet like Moses, the people would be required to hear. And if they won't hear, God would require it of them. Then to the book of Acts chapter 3. Yes. Yeah. Right. weaving it all together and the, the uh, feeling was that one of the signs of the Messiah would be that he would weave together all the parts of the Torah and show how they all fitted together. Good. And that's an example. Thank you for adding that. Acts chapter 3 verse 22. So if you didn't hear him, he said that scripture weaves together Deuteronomy from the Torah as well as the prophets as well as the writings. So all three sections of the Tanakh 
all pointing to Yeshua being the Messiah. Acts chapter 3, verse 22. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from amongst the people. So who are they saying this is about? About the Messiah. If you just back up to verse 19, it says, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Yeshua the Messiah who has preached to you beforehand, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said, so yes, all about Messiah. Acts chapter 7, verse 37. And this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Who's this speaking about? Messiah Yeshua. Absolutely. And then John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 45. John 1, 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the Torah and also the prophets wrote, Yeshua of Nazareth, the son of Joseph who Moses in the law wrote. That's referring back to Deuteronomy 18. Speaking of Deuteronomy 18, let's get back to Deuteronomy 18. What's that? Okay. Verse 16, when it says, according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb, just write in your notes, Exodus chapter 20, Verses 18 to 19. And then let's turn back and look at it. Did the people really cry this out? They really did. Exodus 20 verses 18 to 19. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, You speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. So yes, indeedy, they really did ask that. It's back to Deuteronomy 18, verse 17. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth. Notice that. Underline it. Star it. 
and will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. Let's go up to the book of John, chapter 14. Messiah himself witnesses to this. Twice. John 14, verse 24. Actually, we'll do verse 10 first. And then 24. Verse 10, it says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. What does he mean, I do not speak on my own authority? Whose words are they? That's in verses 23 and 24 of John chapter 14. In verse 23 it says, Yeshua answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the fathers who sent me. And then in John chapter 5. Verses 45 to 46. He says, do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So isn't he saying that the writings of Moses and his words are the same exact thing? Yep, he certainly is. That if you will not accept the words of the Torah, you won't accept his words either. Because they're the same. He is the written Torah, isn't he? Embodied in flesh. We still have two and a half minutes. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 18. We only have 30 pages of notes to go. We're up to verse 19. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Is that a veiled threat? There's no veil at all. Let's go back to John 14. So shouldn't this put to rest the, the teaching that Messiah taught something different? It should put to rest that he taught something different from God because his words are God's words, his own words. Yep, he wrote them. He should know what they say. John 14, 15, if you love me, comma, keep my commandments. And verses 23 and 24 that we read just a verse ago. In his own words, Messiah says, if you will not keep the commandments, it's because you do not love me. What more should we need to say? was true in Deuteronomy and is still true today. Back to Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 to 22. 
But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name which I have not commanded him to speak, or speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Man, there are a lot of false prophets today saying, Thus the Lord told me to share with you all. They ought to read this and tremble. It says, And if you say in your heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So if the prophecy fails to come to pass, is it a true prophet of God? The answer is no. And we've run out of time for the notes. We'll get to them next week, Lord willing.